Hello and welcome to the Take as Directed podcast. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Today's podcast focuses on the unfolding and highly dangerous Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So it's almost six weeks since the outbreak in North Kivu announced on August 1st. We've seen a remarkable mobilization led by WHO and very impressive leadership at the highest levels, including our guests here today, Peter Salama, Deputy Director General of the WHO and Director of the Emergency Programs there. We've seen MSF, International Medical Corps, the International Federation of the Red Cross, Congolese, Ministry of Health, and others all mobilized. This is the first ever case of an Ebola outbreak in an active war zone, and it's in a war zone that is an old war zone with enormous complexity. No fewer than 20 active armed militias in the vicinity of the outbreak. It's among the most disordered and stateless parts of the world. Large population, 8 million uh, vulnerable also to depredations coming from multiple directions, including neighboring states, Uganda and Rwanda. In recent days, we've seen intensified discussion around access as the critical issue for contact tracing, isolation, execution of vaccines, safe burials, most fundamentally preserving the trust and confidence of the communities. We've seen some reference that there are armed escorts being used coming from UN and coming from the DRC military for WHO and some of the other implementers. Others prefer not to use those. There is no discussion of the option of introduction of U.S. troops. This is really something where the UN is very much in the lead in trying to think about what is possible in this setting in terms of addressing the security threat that is posed. Um, The UN peacekeeping operations, the Blue Helmets, Operation is the oldest and largest uh, UN peacekeeping operation. It predates it by several years. It's um, I, I think the current deployments are somewhere around 17,000 troops, an annual budget of a billion or more, and uh, and so much of the discussion migrates inevitably towards that. So, Peter, thank you so much uh, for joining us today to share your views. Maybe you could open by telling us a bit about the overall status of the outbreak and the and the response and then the how you're coping with this unprecedented challenge uh, of working in an active war zone uh, where access is so critical for all the many functions that you are leading. Well, thanks so much for inviting me, Steve, and it's a pleasure to be on, on uh, your program. Uh, we are now in the sixth week of this outbreak, which was officially declared on August the 1st. Uh, it is a very complex outbreak in the sense that many of the issues we faced in the previous uh, DRC outbreak on the western side of the country we're also facing here, but we're also facing additional complicating factors. So we've got the previous ones, we've got logistical factors, we've got the fact that we have several sites for the response uh, and the outbreak uh, going on simultaneously, which is stretching our response to the limit. Uh, We have the fact that we have towns and now a fairly large city in the case of Butembo with more than a million people uh, also affected by the outbreak. We have proximity to borders. Uh, This time it's the borders with Uganda particularly, but also Rwanda. 
uh, and we have the involvement of healthcare facilities and healthcare workers, which for Ebola is always a tragedy in itself, but it also is a potential real implicating factor, and we've seen that be a major driver of transmission in this outbreak. So we've got all of the previous complications we had in Bandaka, but this time we've also got two added ones that you alluded to. One is the fact that this is really a population on the move, and they're on the move for a couple of reasons. One, because uh, of the, the conflict in this region with more than 20 active um, groups, and so one million of the eight million residents of North Kivu are, are internally displaced persons. But we also have people moving for commercial reasons. So some of the cross-border points with Uganda, for example, and a place called Kasindi is only about 50 kilometers uh, from the town of Butembo, which is now affected by the outbreak. Uh, that sees around 10 to 20,000 people crossing the border on a daily basis. So just to give you a sense, this is really a population on the move. It's also a highly population-dense part of DRC. So uh, that's a factor that really affects also the transmission dynamics of a disease such as Ebola. But the biggest really uh, uh, complicating factor that's always in the shadows here is the security issues. Uh, and that's really been a, a real complicating factor from day one of this response. Uh, it's, it's affected the response in a myriad of ways. Uh, we have to be much more prepared. So staff have to have a three-day security training. Every staff member has to have security personal protective equipment. They have to have radios. They have to call in when leaving any location and call in regularly to the central radio base stations, as well as, of course, reporting when they return uh, we've had to on occasion, and particularly there was uh, an issue where a small town called Oicha was affected by the outbreak with two confirmed cases. We had to use UN armed military escorts to get into Oicha. Uh, we've also seen um, real complications in, in the fact that we've had to track contacts of confirmed cases who are in these security red zones. And that's required us to use innovative approaches like rather than being able to visit with healthcare workers to check on the health status of these contacts every day or twice a day as we should, uh, we've given the contacts phones and uh, asked them to call in twice a day with the temperature uh, um, measures so that we can track their, their symptoms and signs of Ebola from a distance. Most recently, we've had two symptomatic um, contacts in security red zones, and that's really uh, made us relook at, at all of our processes in terms of how we're able now to to care and, and protect people that uh, may come down with symptoms and signs of Ebola but are very difficult to access. So it's really challenged us to a great extent. Having said that, in terms of where we are in week six on the outbreak, um, we are seeing some very promising trends in that some of the original epicenters for this outbreak the towns of Beni and particularly Mangina uh, are starting to see very promising trends in terms of um, the number of recent cases. Uh, at the same time, we are seeing these new extensions of the outbreak into, into areas such as Butembo and south of Butembo, a place called Mazureka. And so uh, promising, promising signs overall in terms of the outbreak, Steve, but still a long way to go before we could say this is out of control. And we know that with Ebola, uh, the outbreaks tend to have what we call a sting in the tail. There's always something at the end that, that's, uh, that's uh, unexpected. In terms of the response, uh, I can say that the, all of the response pillars, whether it's uh, the, the surveillance side, 
whether it's the safe burial and community engagement side, uh, whether it's the, the vaccination and treatment side, which are really new paradigm shifts, if you like, in Ebola outbreak response, um, or whether it's our support for the logistics uh, have been going very well and are reaching or have reached now peak performance. To give you one example, we've now vaccinated uh, uh, in, in uh, more than the last 50 confirmed Ebola cases, we've seen the ring vaccination take place. And the majority of those rings have seen uh, either 100% coverage of all eligible people or very close to 100%. So just to give you a sense that, uh, that things are really moving in, in the right direction here. And as long as we can contain the outbreak into these relatively accessible areas, I think we'll be able to get on on top of this outbreak relatively soon. Peter, um, if you could uh, tell me, uh, tell us all a little bit more about what it means to have cases inside Botembo and what does that mean operationally for you? Yeah, so, I mean, we were planning uh, that we had to be prepared for for cases in, in this town and even further afield in larger cities such as Goma. And the reason is that, uh, as I said earlier, this is a population that's highly mobile for reasons of the conflict, but also for for commercial and trade reasons. And so people are constantly on the move. And in fact, when we superimpose where we've seen cases and clusters of cases in this outbreak, it tracks pretty, pretty uh, um, perfectly the major road networks in northern Kivu. So the outbreak has really moved very systematically uh, south from Mangina to Beni and then to further afield and now to Butembo. So we had already actually preparedness measures in place in Butembo. We had teams on the ground who were already coordinating uh, the rapid response uh, teams, the training, had PPE in place, personal protective equipment, uh, and had infection prevention and control measures in place. So once we had a confirmed case, even actually when it was still suspected, uh, we'd already instituted the contact tracing. We'd already had a team there and strengthened the team further now uh, with more than 50 people now from WHO alone uh, in Butembo. And we were able to begin vaccinating on day one of the confirmation of the cases. So it just means that we have basically another simultaneous location to be operational in, and it just puts added uh, pressure on the overall response. WHO has around 200 people on the ground, has had actually uh, since uh, the second week of uh, this outbreak. And uh, we constantly have to relook at where best to deploy those assets. Where are they most needed? Uh, today, we need less in Mangina because the outbreak there uh, is coming under control. That was the original, you remember, epicenter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now we know we need more in, in Butembo. So it's a constant readjustment of where to put our resources, which resources where, and how to adapt and constantly revise the priorities of this response. And that's really my job and the incident management uh, team's job on the ground. Well, congratulations to see these reductions in Benny and Mendinga. The uh, That's very encouraging. The um, So far, the, the insecurity... Um, it has led to some, you know, realignment. The CDC and OFDA team was removed from Benny to Goma, hopefully can be reinserted. You haven't had any uh, loss of life among uh, the providers that I'm aware of, although there are rumors or reports of abductions or, or targeted violence against some of the providers, probably those that are, that are the Congolese. 
What are you seeing in that environment? And are you seeing operators? Are you seeing some of the providers beginning to lower their profile or remove themselves from from more direct engagement to be more on the periphery? Well, I think the first thing to note that uh, Steve, that even though um, Goma particularly and the South Kivu region is a real humanitarian hub for a lot of organizations and and really the base for some mega humanitarian operations. Actually, there are very few partners, uh, NGO or international agencies, international partners in this part of North Kivu. So really the main responders have been uh, WHO, of course, with the Ministry of Health supporting their leadership, uh, UNICEF, uh, the World Food Program. Of course, MONUSCO has provided an enormous amount of logistic and other support, including air assets. Uh, and some of the key NGOs, such as Alima, MSF, and more recently, IMC and IRC and Oxfam. So it's a relatively small group of, of partners. And, of course, I'm sorry, the, the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement have been extremely important partners on the uh, on the safe burial and community engagement issues particularly. Um, so it's a relatively small number of partners, and uh, that's, in a sense, um, uh, okay because uh, given the, the level of security threat that we're facing, this is UN security level four, remembering that level five is evacuation status for the UN. So given we are, we are really always here on the verge of evacuation, it's extremely important that, uh, that we have exactly the right people with the right expertise on the ground in the right places. And so far, we've managed to keep that balance, but it is a constant balance and rebalance. And as soon as we start to see positive trends, we have to reassess, okay, do we need to put to have those people in the, in the most insecure locations? Can we uh, bring them back to, to a more secure base? And that's a constant uh, uh, reassessment because we are putting hundreds of people at WHO and the, and the partners in harm's way in order to stop this outbreak. So it's a very heavy burden that we all have in, in these deployments and something we're, we're, we're tracking literally on an hourly basis. There's been a few major security incidences that have, that have been of grave concern, and we really need to differentiate those from what we see almost uh, uh, all the time in Ebola responses because the disease is so terrifying, and that's an element of community resistance or, or refusal or reluctance, and sometimes that can, that can verge on violence or, or be violent. But that's very different qualitatively from the armed attacks that we see from rebel groups. And there's been two major ones in and around Beni, uh, and they've been within kilometers of the major airport in Beni and where our major base has been for WHO and uh, and the response partners in Beni, literally three or four kilometers away, uh, where uh, the ADF rebel groups um, uh, basically overran uh, Congolese military bases and took their weapons and uh, and also um, killed uh, a, a number of Congolese army uh, personnel as well as uh, as uh, Munisco peacekeepers in two separate incidences and they've occurred over the last two or three weeks so so really at the same time as uh, as we've been uh, reaching uh, peak numbers of of uh, UN responders. Uh, so we've uh, that's resulted sometimes in the roads being closed that we've needed to use to get to, for example, Oicha or Mangina from Beni, uh, and so has hampered the response somewhat, uh, and has also 
constantly caused us to reassess our security posture and our number of staff. So it is extremely concerning. My question is, um, uh, when, when you confront these attacks like from ADF um, in and around Benny, um, of course you can go two directions. One is to try to have some kind of de-escalation and some sort of negotiated access, and I wanted to ask you about whether any of the, anything along those lines is happening. Another is to intensify the level of of security that you can get, say, from the UN. Um, back in the, from the Minerso, I mean, back in the earlier periods when M23 was was running, you know, creating violent mayhem within this same area, um, uh, there was a special unit, a FIB unit created within the, the UN peacekeeping operation that was quite effective. At, at clearing out M23 in that period. Are there considerations along those lines? Or, you know, which direction are you going in terms of trying to address these threats? Yeah, well, I think it's a combination, uh, Stephen. And it also very much depends on the particular group. So there are groups such as such as the Mai Mai group, which are quite integrated into the communities where it's quite possible to have if not direct and certainly indirect uh, discussions through community leaders, through youth leaders, and really make everyone understand that stopping Ebola is in absolutely everyone's interest, uh, including any any rebel groups. Uh, With the ADF, it's a little more difficult. Uh, That's a group with much more opaque uh, motives, with a much less clear command structure, and MONUSCO is there and has been highly engaged in this response and uh, and providing very important support on security, uh, on logistics, uh, particularly the air assets, on uh, helping us set up uh, forward bases for all of our work. And the FIB actually still exists um, uh, there and it's actually based in, in Benny itself. So, so they're very operational, but there is no group that has any direct uh, negotiations that we're aware of uh, with ADF. It's all very much indirect, and it's not easy to get clarity on on uh, the perceptions or position of ADF related to to this response. We have constantly sent out um, uh, messages that this is very much um, a response that has only one objective, and that's to protect the people of North Kivu from this deadly disease. And uh, we would like to hope that that's a message that's well understood uh, by all of the fighting factions uh, in North Kivu, uh, that this is really in everyone's interest to stop this outbreak. Because, of course, the worst case scenario is this outbreak takes hold in some of the most insecure, inaccessible parts of the hinterlands very close to the DRC, Ugandan border on the DRC side, and then really becomes entrenched there and becomes much harder to stop. And so far, we've managed to contain the outbreak, even though it's right on the border of those uh, highly insecure areas. We've managed to keep it within a relatively accessible area, but it's very close to to those uh, most insecure areas. And so we're, we're right on the edge here, Steve. Yes, no, I understand, and that's very clear. Um, so let's say that that outcome, that worst case, is is realized, then what what did, what do you see as the option there? How do you, if things have to be carried to a higher level in terms of getting access to those to that area uh, that you just pointed to, what what are the options? So I mean we've got we've got kind of 
programmatic options and and more more specific technical options that we've we've also been planning um, because we know from the beginning and have known from the beginning that this scenario is very much a possibility. So some of the creative programming options are, for example, to use community health workers and communities themselves and contacts themselves using cell phone technology. And by the way, the cell phone coverage in North Kivu is actually quite good, much better than it was on the other side of DRC, where really we were relying on a lot of paper-based uh, information sharing, such as the, the data and surveillance data. Here we're, we're using WhatsApp, we're using uh, cell phones for a lot of the, the transmission of data, lab results, and, and uh, other information. So that's been extremely useful, and we'll continue to use that as we have with with the 40-plus contacts that have been in these highly insecure areas um, to be able to call in remotely and monitor remotely. And then if we have to, to evacuate people, if you like, from insecure areas to secure areas if they do become uh, symptomatic. And so we'll use strategies such as that. We'll, of course, continue to use armed escorts. Uh, as you alluded to earlier, not all partners will do this. MSF and the Red Cross Red Crescent movement are much more reluctant to do that, but uh, we will uh, continue to use UN armed military escorts if we need to, to reach places as we did with Oitja, because there was no alternative. Once we had confirmed cases in that town, the choices were really to to uh, allow the outbreak to, to explode or to get in there at least during daylight hours and then come back to base at night for a number of days, which allowed us to do full contact tracing in that town and full vaccination. And that stopped the outbreak in Oitja in a matter of days. Uh, so we'll use the same programmatic techniques. What we've also got agreement from from our scientific advisory committees is to adapt some of our more technical strategies. So, for example, we have had a recommendation from our scientific advisory group, SAGE, for immunization to use ring vaccination for Ebola using the investigational Merck vaccine. We've asked SAGE and got approval from them to use a different strategy in insecure areas if we need to because the ring vaccination relies on very detailed contact tracing, which takes many hours, sometimes days. So we now have an alternative immunization strategy for insecure areas where if it affects a small neighborhood or small village, we basically have approval now to vaccinate everyone very quickly uh, in that small village or neighborhood to avoid the heavy time associated with doing detailed contact tracing. So we can adapt our technical strategies as well, and we will do so if required. So basically, we're committed to do what it takes to stop this outbreak, uh, Steve, even if it goes into the most insecure areas. And we know that our colleagues in MONUSCO have also made those commitments to WHO and the Ministry of Health to do this no matter what it takes. Yeah, I mean, in some respects, this is not fundamentally different from the strategies of the Global Polio Eradication Initiative in in uh, in the ways that immunization campaigns were carried out on the uh, Afghan-Pakistan border during periods of really high uh, uh, armed conflict of quick in and out or grabbing populations as they floated through and, and, and engaging in vaccinations um, in those ways. Um, there were a lot of other techniques developed in terms of using of, of using uh, uh, folks affiliated with the armed groups themselves to 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 begin carrying out some vaccinations. I sense that's not happening in this case. I mean, you've got the MyMy cooperation, 
Uh, that's one instance. But in other respects, you're, it's too polarized and fragmented, I expect. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference here is that this is an area that's had active conflict for many years, and there is a huge amount of suspicion and distrust um, amongst communities and huge fault lines uh, between communities. I mean, the other issue is, of course, that with ADF in particular, and remember, ADF is the predominant um, militia group on the eastern part where we're most concerned about from a security perspective. Um, that group has a very recent history of taking humanitarian uh, personnel hostage, yeah. um, whether, whether it's uh, uh, MSF, whether it's local religious groups. Uh, and so uh, it's very hard, as I mentioned, uh, in that context and in the context of not having real clarity over a command structure or motives uh, to to be able to engage directly with uh, such a group. Yeah, just a short while ago, a couple of years ago, we did a consultation here, here in this building with the uh, Franciscans who operate uh, have been operating for decades in that very area, and what they were suffering um, in terms of abductions and attacks was quite astonishing, given the degree to which they provided care and health care and education to those communities. Um, so, anyway, I. Uh, 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 we're most impressed and very and 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 most in, uh, grateful to everything that you, Peter, and the WHO staff have done in this period. It's quite a remarkable, courageous, and absolutely essential. Any uh, closing thoughts around um, this next phase in terms of we have you've had your monitoring board, the new monitoring board just met. We have the UN General Assembly coming forward. Security Council has been briefed recently by Dr. Tedros and by yourself, I believe. Um, there's going to remain high-level oversight and interest in thinking about this. Um, any closing thoughts around what you're looking for at, at that at a high diplomatic level and any specific um, advice with regard to what more the U.S. can do? Yeah, so, I mean, we're, we're really at the stage now where we have to finish the job and we have to finish it quickly, Steve, before this outbreak spreads geographically to areas that are going to be even more uh, difficult to access. So we're really laser-focused at the moment on on really stopping this outbreak and doing whatever it takes to, to get the job done. We're also very much involved with surrounding countries and even surrounding provinces within the DRC to ensure that they're extremely well-prepared and they're all very much on standby, and we're getting alerts actually from surrounding countries and surrounding provinces daily, which uh, which really is a good sign that uh, that everyone is really uh, sensitised and on standby to to ensure that if we do get a confirmed case uh, in in any of these surrounding areas, we're going to be able to respond extremely rapidly. Uh, so that's really the, the major priority at the moment. Um, we are briefing the Security Council. I'm doing that uh, uh, next week again, uh, just to update them on, on the latest developments and ensure strong strong political support continues for this response. And we certainly had that. In terms of uh, the U.S. government involvement, uh, we have had a very close relationship with CDC and NIH, in particular during this outbreak, on various facets. Uh, of course, the CDC deployments particularly have been constrained by uh, security concerns uh, in and around Beni. We had the benefit of, um, of key staff there for, for a few days, but uh, unfortunately they were, had to be evacuated after one of the security incidences in and around Beni that 
I mentioned earlier. But they have been providing support from Goma. Uh, they have also been supporting um, surrounding countries, particularly Uganda and Rwanda, in terms of preparedness uh, activities. Uh, and we've also been very involved uh, with the NIH, both in research discussions around the ongoing ring vaccination trial uh, and also uh, in uh, potential um, uh, trials around the therapeutic drugs that we're using. And that's extremely important. This is the first time and, and represents a huge paradigm shift that we've been able to use uh, these uh, sophisticated therapeutics on a relatively large scale in any Ebola outbreak. So it's quite groundbreaking. Um, we now have 29 people that have been treated uh, with those therapeutics. Uh, as I said, it's the first time this has ever happened, and we're working very closely with a lot of the U.S. government agencies, including NIH, uh, on, on these new developments, and hope to have, not necessarily just in this outbreak, because we need large numbers to make conclusive, um, 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 to do conclusive studies, uh, so it will be a multi-outbreak, multi-country set of set of trials, but it will ex be extremely important in answering the questions, which drugs are really the safest and most effective. Uh, but we have some preliminary data already from from the 29 people that have been treated to, to say that this could be extremely promising. Uh, and as well as being an equity issue for the people uh, being treated, also a very much uh, a confidence-building issue for the broader communities to be able to say, look, uh, you can come to an Ebola treatment unit, please come early, and please know that it won't be just isolation that you get, um, but actually you'll get uh, um, supportive care and some of the best therapeutics that we have available uh, anywhere in the world. And that's been a very important message in, and a very important change for our response to Ebola. In the longer term, Steve, I think the key message here is one around the what we're seeing more and more of uh, in WHO. 80% of our major outbreaks in the last couple of years, certainly since I've been in this role, have been in countries that could be classified as fragile states. And that's a trend that we're going to see more and more of. So this really complicated confluence of high-threat pathogen outbreaks in conflict-affected areas. And that uh, is going to imply a whole new way of working for not only organizations such as WHO, but all of our partners, where we find models of bringing to bear the best possible scientific and technical expertise, but in some of the most remote and, uh, and hostile environments. And that's something that's going to be on the agenda for the health community, but also for the security community for many years to come. Thank you very much. I mean, that argument that you just so eloquently summarized is a very central theme within the CSIS Commission on Health Security that we launched back in April, which is running for two years. And, and I, agree in, I, I agree wholeheartedly that um, th these are the realities that we face, and um, much of the work that's being done in health security is in this disordered sort of setting, and it's going to require, require a very significant and careful rethink around um, how we operate most effectively Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for all of your leadership and commitment in this area and all of the WHO staff who have put themselves in harm's way in order to battle this very dangerous outbreak. Um, and a special thanks also to all of the many other Congolese and non-Congolese who have deployed into this region um, at high risk, uh, both in terms of violent 
uh, attacks as well as the actual nature of the pathogen itself. And so um, it's quite inspiring to see that despite all of these odds, you are continuing to hold people there and to be able to, to show some some uh, some movement and, and to adapt all of your tactics uh, uh, moving ahead. And so we wish you all the best and very grateful that you would take the time this, this morning to uh, share all of these thoughts. The interest levels here in the United States are exceptionally high in knowing uh, exactly what is happening and, and, and what the evolving strategy is. A pleasure to talk to you as always, Steve. Thank you for joining us today for the Take as Directed podcast on the Ebola outbreak in eastern Congo. Please go to the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Program page to keep up to date on our evolving activities and programs. Thank you.